Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you've given us. And this week, Lord, as we've celebrated Thanksgiving, it is my prayer, Lord, that our eyes were focused on you, that we were thanking you as the giver of all good things. Lord, it's easy to get caught up in the material wealth we have and the material riches you've blessed us with and think that it's something we've accomplished for ourselves and want to give ourselves a little bit of gratitude and a little bit of thanks and a little bit of the credit for the things we've done. But Lord, we know from your word that you are the giver of all good things, and we thank you. Lord, we know that the, from your word that everything that we have comes from you, that you give and that you take away. And we are grateful, Lord, for what you do in our lives. Your name is to be blessed in either way. And we are thankful for giving you peace in our souls through your decisions and with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we're going to start a little bit different. It's going to be some interactive time. I have a question for you. What does it mean to be rich? This is the interactive part. I would never have any idea. <laughs> okay, so what does it mean to be rich? Okay, I bet you half the population wouldn't say that. But what else? Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff, yes. Lots of stuff could indicate your level of wealth. Jason Michaelowitz. <laughs> You're a, sometimes we set lower standards. What does it? What does it really mean to be rich? To have money, right? That that's the typical thought. Well, when you look at today's passage, that's the question that presents itself right away. Right? What does it mean to be rich? And so, what do you do when you have a question? You Google it, right? Okay. When you Google what does it mean to be rich, you find responses like, in the end, being rich has nothing to do with money. It has to do with being happy with what you have and not desiring more. Being rich is having enough. Good definition. It also says wealth means having a big house, a boat, and a private jet or maybe just a comfortable home and good health insurance. And finally, and perhaps the answer that I like the best, the truth is we don't all know what it means to be rich. Being rich is subjective, is it not? Right? And I will bet you that just like Google and the people in this room, you'd have thousands of different answers if you were to ask that. Now normally, um, it's important to know what rich would mean in this context. We're gonna read this first together in a few minutes. And it would make sense that we would want to nail down the definition of what it means to be rich. But not today. Because as you'll see as we work our th way through this passage, it's not our financial condition that matters. It's not what we need to be concerned about. What matters is how we use the resources that God has lent us. Now, as we've worked our way through the book of James, we've seen that it's a book that is used to challenge us as believers. It's a call for believers to put your faith into practice. It's not enough for us to rest in the joy and the peace of our salvation while we watch the rest of the world run with reckless abandon into hell, is it? James challenges us continually to live lives that bring God glory, that live lives where our faith is shown not just something we hold inside. The book is convicting. 
And today's passage is absolutely no different. As we take a look at the significance of riches. Now, this may bring some conviction. And if it does, it's my my prayer that we will all respond appropriately to it. Be open to what the Word of God says. I can promise you, if I was just up here speaking on my own, I would encourage you not to listen a whole lot. This is the Word of God, right? This is not the Word of Jason. Pay attention. If there's conviction here, it's not coming from me. It's coming from the Holy Spirit. So let's read it together. James 5, verses 1 through 6. You know what? I am going to ask you to stand back up with me. The Word of God says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Have a seat. Now there's a great deal of practical application in this scripture. And it impacts all of us. In a world where there's nothing free, it would be foolish to say that money is of absolutely no consequence. But it would be even more foolish to say that the consequence, the significance, and the impact on our lives that money has doesn't change when we're saved. When God has saved us from our sins, money gets placed in its appropriate perspective. Unless we allow it to do otherwise. So in our time this morning... I'm going to ask you to consider three truths about riches drawn from this passage. Number one, some riches are temporary. Truth number two, and I'll repeat these as we come to them. Truth number two, riches that are acquired or retained at the detriment of others result in the wrath of God. So number one, some riches are temporary. Number two, riches that are attained or retained at the expense of others will bring God's wrath. And number three, riches can be fickle, giving both luxury today and misery tomorrow. So let me start off by saying that riches are not inherently evil, despite what some of us might think sometimes. Let's not demonize wealth because the Bible doesn't demonize wealth. You can read in Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And Puritan Richard Baxter, when he was writing on 1 John 2.15, where we're instructed not to love the things of this world, wrote the following words. We need to guard our lives against the love of riches and worldly cares. All love for earthly goods, however, is not a sin. Their sweetness is a drop of his love, and they have his goodness imprinted on them. They kindle our love for him as love tokens from our dearest friend. To love them is a duty, not a sin. 
Earthly blessings are the means of sustaining our bodies and preserving our life and health. As we do God the service we owe Him in the world on our journey to heaven. So the first truth, some riches are temporary. Speaking of wealth, Proverbs 23, 5 says, When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I'll never, ever forget how I learned this lesson. When I was young, very young, third grade, I think it was, our parents bought five and a half acres of land to move us out of the city where we lived in Dallas, 70 miles southeast. So we could grow up in the country where the air was clear and people thought differently. And it was just a wonderful place for four young boys to grow up, right? Almost no boundaries. We could go everywhere. We could do anything. We loved it there. And my parents worked hard. They saved up. And one, one day they were able to tell us that they were able to buy a house. And we were living in a, in, a, in a mobile home at the time. And they were able to afford a house. And they bought this house. And they took us to look at it. It was beautiful. It was really old. It was two stories. had stained glass windows up in the top. It's a gorgeous house. Wraparound porch that went all the way around it. And they bought the house. And they were having it moved to our land. So 70 miles they were going to move this house out to our land. And I remember we were there. And we were all so excited when that house started moving. Right, they had it all jacked up. They had it on these rails. And that house started rolling. And it seemed like it took forever to get there. And we finally got to within about two miles of the house. And we're going down this old country road. It's one lane each way. It's one of those things where when two pickup trucks come together, one of them has to kind of halfway get in the ditch so the other one can get by. You know what I'm talking about? The old gravel road. We're going down this gravel road. And we get to within about a mile of our land. And the crew gets notified, hey, you can't cross that bridge. It's coming up. We're not sure it'll hold up the house, so you got to go back. So they backed this house back up that country road. And I'm telling you, the fear was palpable, right? But they got that thing all the way up there. They set it back on the freeway, and they started the other route to come to our house. And everything was going beautiful, right? We're all relaxed. We're feeling good. We're watching our house. Have you ever seen a house spin driven down the road? It's kind of a cool thing. It really is. It's kind of weird, but it's cool. But here we are. We're getting closer and closer and closer. And we came to another bridge. And our hearts dropped. Because so did the house. Right through the bridge. The bridge didn't hold it up. So we sit there in the road and we're looking up and we're seeing our home sitting there. All you can see is the top story. The stained glass windows are broken. The house is sitting there. The movers grabbed their gear and fled. So the county had no choice. They had to burn our house so they could build their bridge. There was nothing else could be done about it. It was a complete loss. There was no insurance. There was nothing. Everything was gone. So we went back to our five and a half acres, and my parents opened up the little travel trailer they had, a 12-foot travel trailer, and the six of us lived in it for the next two or three months. And it was October, November, December time frame. You ever taken a shower in a water hose in Texas, East Texas, <laughs> in October and November? <laughs> you know very well how little you have when you're doing that. It's cold. It's very cold. And you look around yourself, and everything your family owns is stacked out in this pasture. And it's either got plastic or blankets over it. And it's your whole world. It's everything you own. And if you've ever been in Texas in October, November, December, it's not a dry time. It rains. It rains a lot. So pretty much everything we owned, it was almost like a fire burned everything down. 
and there was no insurance. So we lost absolutely everything. So I know what it's like, even as a child, to lose absolutely everything. Now, I can't tell you what my dad's burden was. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to know how bad he felt, how much it hurt him. But the point is, it's a sobering lesson. But don't forget it. Because you can lose everything very, very quickly. And there's a lot of ways we can lose everything. We can lose our material wealth by theft, as we all saw when our sound system was taken. You can lose it by tragedy. You can lose it by bad investment decisions. Or ultimately, you can lose it simply because God says your time is up. Regardless of how it happens, in the end, we will all lose absolutely every material wealth we have. I promise you, you can't take it with you. If anybody ever could, uh, we all know that the pharaohs have all tried, right? We see all their tombs. Gold's still there. Jewels are still there. Everything is still there. You can't take it with you. You will lose absolutely everything. However, there are some riches that we can't lose. We see examples of those riches, the riches we should be pursuing in Proverbs 22.1. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. These are the riches we need to be pursuing with our whole hearts. We need to be pursuing riches such as wisdom, integrity, love for other people, diligence, humility, a love for others that overcomes our own selfishness, a love of God, a love of God that drives us to His Word, a love of God that drives us to worship Him, a love of God that causes us to put others ahead of ourselves. Riches like these are the ones that we're told we're supposed to pursue. These are the riches we need to cling to as though our lives and our very souls depended on them. These are the riches that God blesses us with that result in His glory and the edification of others. Now, our, our material riches do serve a purpose in our lives. They can be a test of our character. The test of our character comes in what we're willing to do to acquire and hold on to wealth that leads to our second truth. Riches acquired and or retained at the detriment of others will result in the wrath of God. And you can see this in verses 4 and 6 of our reading today. So let me ask you this, and you don't need to answer this time. What are you willing to do to acquire and maintain riches? Okay, at this point, I need you to be listening. Because you really need to be honest with yourself in this point. This is important stuff. Now, are you willing to work long hours to the detriment of your family in order to make more money? I'm not here to say how a household should function, but if both of the parents are working and as a result of that, the children are being neglected one way or the other, are you willing to say just a little bit of cheating here and there is okay? Are you willing to take what little others have for the purpose of enriching yourself? If the Holy Spirit convicts you for the way you acquire or maintain your wealth, do you, do you respond appropriately? Do you hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit and change? Or do you justify what it is you're doing to keep moving forward the way you want to go? 
These are important things you need to ask yourself, folks. This is real life stuff. These aren't just words on a page. This is the word of God that he uses to show us how he would have us live. Pay attention. Be honest with yourself and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit when you, when you deal with these issues. There's a strong warning given to us about oppressing others for our own gain. And Joe read part of it this morning from Isaiah 5, 7, where God promises to bring justice to bear on those who claim to be believers, yet oppress the poor. It will happen. God will take vengeance on those who are, for those who are oppressed. Don't be one of those who oppress them. It happens in our church today. Allow me to quote Baxter again. The sinful love of riches is when they are loved, desired, and sought after to satisfy the flesh more than the love of God. Or when they lift up our pride that we may shine among men and live at a high rate of splendor. This is a great sin because it is a sin of deliberation and not just a sudden passion. It becomes idolatry by setting up a love for something which love is due solely to God. It shows a contempt for heaven, preferring the world to heavenly glory. That's the difference. Material wealth in and of itself is not bad. It's not inherently bad. It's when we love it and we make it our idols that we have problems. In Acts 4, beginning in verse 32, we read an example of what should be happening. We see it in the early church. You guys are all going to be familiar with this story. But here's what's happening in the, in the early church. It's a glorious time. All the believers are gathered together. They're gathered together for the purpose of sharing the gospel. They're, they're, they're edifying one another. They're glorifying God. They're sharing the gospel with the people around them. When somebody doesn't have something, somebody else helps them by providing it for them. There's no rule that says how you have to go about doing that. But Barnabas has some land and he sells it. And he brings that money and he places it for the apostles to be used by the church as the apostles see fit. And what he's doing there is what can be heard, seen in Proverbs 22, 9, where it says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. And that's what Barnabas is doing. He's sharing the proceeds of his cell with the church. Now there's another couple there. Ananias and Sapphira. Heard those names before? Right? Now here's a couple who decides, we have land we can sell. Let's sell it. So they sell the land. And they come before the apostles. Ananias comes first. And he brings some money and he gives it to the apostles. And now scripture doesn't say what the conversation was there, but he either insinuated or he said outright, here's the money from the sale. But what he had done was withheld some. Everybody heard that before? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Ananias didn't give everything, but he represented it as everything. He lied to God. He cheated the church. And what happened? God killed him instantly. And then his wife, whom you'd obviously conspired with to commit this crime of, of uh, cheating God, comes in and makes the same representation. And what happens to her? The same men that buried her husband carried her out. When you are willing to lie and cheat God, you have got a major problem. There was no rule that said they had to give all the money up. There was no rule that said they had to give any of the money up. But when they were willing to lie and cheat God in order to make themselves look better, 
that's where they ran into a problem. That's what we, where we run into a problem. So why is it that we're willing to lie to acquire and, tame material and retain material riches? James told us in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, that we do it because we, we don't have what we want because we ask for the wrong reasons. Rather, we ask because we want to use whatever God is going to give us for our own selfish gain instead of to his glory. We ask because we're sinful, because we want to spend it on ourselves. That's why we don't have it, but we're willing to lie and cheat to keep it. That's a problem. Solomon, wisest man to ever live, right? He said this. He said, there is nothing new under the sun. Some of the rich have always been so addicted to their love for money that they've been willing to oppress the poor. And Job kind of described it for us. You guys remember the description that Job gives of the laborers in the field? They're basically naked and they're hungry while they're carrying in the sheaves of grain for the rich people. They can't eat a thing, but they have to carry this food in and lay it down. And they're thirsty while they're treading out the grapes for wine, but they're given none of it. And then on top of that, what do the, what do the owners do? What do the farmers, the rich men who run these farms do? They look for excuses not to give them their pay for their day's work. Maybe they didn't work hard enough. Maybe they didn't bring enough in. But they're willing to keep the payment that was, get, that was due to those people, regardless of how hard they worked. And despite that, the willingness to withhold their pay, nothing seems to happen to them, does it? But we'll see later what happens. In the New Testament, we read that things weren't much different. God's word warns us that if we desire to amass material riches, it is because we have, we have hard and impenitent hearts that will fall into temptation and develop senseless and harmful desires that will plunge us into ruin and destruction. The truth of his warning is clearly seen in James 4.2, where we are warned that because we covet material wealth, we will fight, quarrel with one another, and even murder to achieve it. We're no better, folks. We are no better than they. That's why we have to be honest with ourselves. That's why we have to be in prayer about what it is we do with what God gives us. We have to keep it in perspective. When we make our pursuit of wealth our primary focus or desire or purpose in life, we will be subject to be snared in the traps of compromise and tempted to sacrifice our integrity. The sinful, selfish desire that leads us to go to any extent to acquire material riches will also cause us to go to every, any extent to keep them. Now, God kind of gave us another story in his Bible that tells us exactly what this looks like. It shows us exactly how powerful the hold on our riches or the hold on us our riches have. In Matthew 19, verses 16 to 24, and the facts are these. A rich young man comes to Jesus because he wants to confirm that he's done everything he needs to do to make sure that he's going to get into heaven. So Jesus runs down a list of rules that he should have kept from the time he was very young. And the young ruler is very proud when he's able to say, I've done every bit of that. And Jesus says, there's only one more thing you need to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The young man walked away. He was heartbroken and he walked away. He retained his great possessions. 
but he gave up his hope in the future. That's what our wealth can do to us. That's what happens if your temporary love for material wealth literally means more to you than your eternity, just like it did for him. Folks, this wasn't a parable. This wasn't Jesus sharing a parable of how people interact with money. This was a true story. That young ruler walked away from heaven. He walked away from an eternity with Christ. He walked away from his hope to hold on to his riches because that's where his riches were. So what are we supposed to do? Do we give away everything? Do we live lives of poverty in order to please God? Will that make him happy if we have absolutely nothing? God doesn't hate the rich. God doesn't hate material wealth. We read that earlier. Baxter showed us the value of wealth. The disciples gave away everything. Do you think that they did it because that's what pleased God? Do you think that earned him his they earned them his favor? No, it didn't. We all know there's nothing we can do with our money that's going to earn us God's favor. Our money is his. He's lent it to us. There, you can't be good enough with it that he's going to say, okay, I'll look, overlook all that sin. You've done a really good job with that. Right? You've shared it with people. That's all good. You've earned my favor. Come on in. That's not how it works. The leading or conviction of the Holy Spirit is what's important here. If you realize that everything you have has been entrusted to you, that's God's and you are simply his steward entrusted with his material wealth for a little while, you will not prioritize those things above the welfare of others others, or the kingdom of God. You'll be quick to share what you have with those who have need as God makes that need known to you. And I'm not saying that we need to have some sort of forced socialism here, right? I make X amount of money, so I'm going to give X amount to these people because that's the right thing to do. What it means is listen to what the Holy Spirit leads you to do with your money. It's, I, it's not mine. It's not my responsibility. But we know from Acts 4 that the, that the Bible doesn't say we have to give everything to everybody else. But we are called to help our brothers and sisters in times of need, are we not? Absolutely. And we should. But here's the thing. If we love God with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds, and we love our neighbor as ourselves as we're commanded to do, there's not going to be room for loving riches so much that we're willing to acquire them and hold on to them at the expense of those around us. So evaluate yourself. Check your heart. See what God is calling you to do with what he's blessed you with. If your riches mean more to you than the welfare of those around you, those that you may be oppressing in order to achieve or maintain them, if acquiring your material riches is more important to you than spending time with your family or in your quiet time with the Lord, it means, if it means more to you than the kingdom of God, then yes, you need to give them away. Because what you've done is made them idols, and you need to separate yourself from them. And you need to ask God to change your heart. So how do you know if that's the case? How do you know if you love things more than other people? You ever had anybody visit your house and maybe break something? Maybe it was something really valuable? I haven't. I don't know anything like that. Not because I'm better. I just don't have enough sense to know what is valuable and what isn't. But if that kind of thing ever happens to you, how do you respond? Do you get angry? What about your car? You ever had a brand new car and taken it and parked it in a parking lot? Then you come back out and there's no longer anybody parked it next to you? 
but they left you a nice ding in your door. Did it upset you? Do you get upset about that? Do you get upset when somebody breaks into your house and steals your stuff? Not because they were in your house. That is a weird feeling. I know that one for sure. But they have my stuff now, right? Is that, that, is that how you look at it? Do you get upset like that? It's normal, right? It's normal to be upset when somebody takes something from you, is it not? It's normal to be upset when you lose something valuable. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to be normal. That's the truth of the whole thing. We are not called to be normal. We are called to remember that all things are God's. We are called to remember that He gives and that He takes away and He is to be praised in either situation. If you are so stressed because you don't have something anymore that somebody took away from you, it's probably not well with your soul, is it? No? Put your riches in perspective. Now, God is an avenging God, is He not? Scripture tells us that He will avenge a number of things. And one of those things, as we saw in our, in our passage today, is unpaid wages. So, if you happen to be somebody who is wrongly withholding from someone what is rightfully theirs, you are incurring the wrath of God and you better repent immediately. God isn't blind and He hasn't turned a blind eye to the cry of the oppressed. In Isaiah, we're warned that God will avenge those who are oppressed and He will bring about justice on their behalf. Those who oppress others to enrich themselves will find great woes, whether now or in the future. Now, on the other side, if you happen to be one of those people that's being cheated, what's your responsibility? Are you supposed to rise up and slay your master because he hasn't given you what's rightfully yours? No, you're not. Right? We're told in Romans 12, 17 to 19, that we are not to repay evil with evil. It is not ours to seek revenge. But think about whose it is. It's God's to seek revenge, right? Now, I've never had anybody cheat me, so I don't know how deep that anger runs. But I can tell you this. When God avenges his people, it will be very, very bad for the person on the other end of that. So if somebody is cheating you, let me encourage you to pray for them. Pray that their hearts will change. Because if their hearts don't change, God's vengeance is coming. And the woes are going to be great. And the woes are going to be eternal. And none of us should want that for anyone. So if you're the person who's being oppressed, please pray for the person who's oppressing you. I know I'm asking a great deal. I have never been oppressed. But if that applies to you, please remember what's waiting them and pray that God will change their hearts. And with that, we'll move on to our third truth. Riches can be fickle, giving both luxury today and misery tomorrow. Everybody knows who Solomon was, right? King David's son. He was a humble young man. In fact, he was so humble that when God himself said, Solomon, what do you desire? Right? Anything he could think of, he could have said. His response was wisdom. I want to be a good leader for your people. 
That's the kind of leader I want myself, right? Somebody who cares enough about me to say, you can have anything you want, but what I want is to make sure that I, I lead these people well. That's fantastic. You've got to love a leader like that. And God acknowledged that, and God rewarded that. God, the Bible tells us that God gave Solomon not only more wisdom than anybody else, but he also blessed him with riches beyond his wildest means or dreams. His, his kingdom was incredible. And the queen of Sheba, she heard of the great riches that Solomon had in his kingdom, and she wanted to come see them for herself. So as was customary, she brought a gift to give to her host when she arrived. Now this gift had a number of elements, right? One of those elements was 120, um, what's one of 120 talents of gold. Do you guys know how much that is? 120 talents is 9,047 pounds. That's a gift that she gave him. 9,047 pounds of gold, almost five tons, just as a gift. When I was reading this, I was thinking, man, how'd she get that across the desert? But that's not the point here. The, the point is, she gave him a gift like that, which means that she is not easily impressed. But the Bible tells us that when she saw the wisdom and the riches of Solomon's kingdom, she was left what? Breathless. Right? She was so incredibly impressed that she was breathless at what she saw. Do you guys know that I looked it up and if Solomon in today's society, you know what his material worth would have been? 2.3 trillion, with a T, 2.3 trillion dollars. That's the kind of wealth that Solomon had. Solomon was no stranger to luxury. However, despite all of his riches, Solomon failed to find his joy in the heavenly riches. And instead, he sought the things that he thought would make him happy. He sought out material riches. As we read in Ecclesiastes, Solomon did not deny himself anything. But in the end, he described it all as vanity. And he tells us that it all failed to meet his deepest need. You see, the problem is that fallen man doesn't trust in God. And we have a built-in need to trust in God. And when you try to fill that trust with something else, you will always be left empty. Now, a lot of us try to fill it with things like our intelligence, or our strength, our personalities, our abilities. And you know, some people are pretty good at amassing riches. And those riches provide them with a great deal of luxury and ease. And they begin to trust in those riches to keep them safe. After all, they've learned that their riches can protect them, not only from others, but also from their own dumb mistakes, right? I've protected myself with my riches a couple of times when I said something dumb to my wife and covered it up with some roses or something. Right? <laughs> hey, it works, right? I learned to trust. Hey, if I can afford some roses, I can do something stupid here, right? That's just kind of how it works. So careful where you put your trust, folks. God knew we had this tendency to trust in our riches. And he knew that we would lean on those to protect us. So he warned Israel of our tendency back in Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 18. When he was about to bring his people into the land that he had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before, the land that was plentiful and had an abundance of resources in it. 
God knew what was going to happen with his people. And so he took the time to warn them. And it says in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 18, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Like we talked about earlier, material wealth is not inherently evil. But Baxter reminded us that our material riches are God's way of meeting our needs. And we must be careful not to put our trust in them. We must remember that while they provide us luxury, that luxury often leads to misery. In Solomon's case, his search for pleasure in all things resulted in misery when he realized that what he was looking for couldn't be found there. In the case of the people of Israel, it was when the luxury overtook the need for God that we turned our backs on him and we suffered the misery of being taken into captivity and abused for hundreds of years. People have a tendency to trust their riches. Don't be one of those people. Keep your riches in perspective. God's warning isn't limited by time. When we become comfortable in our luxury, we begin to trust in our material wealth for our own protection, to save us from the threats around us, and to cover our mistakes. The more we gather, the more trust we place in it. When we fail to remember this truth, that our luxuries will provide a false sense of trust, and we will become, they will become a source of misery for us. I found one more quote on the Ligonier website that I want to share. It says, those who put their trust in riches do not give a thought to the fleeting quality of this life. They do not peer into the chasm of eternity and consider what awaits them beyond the grave. They've been duped by their own idolatrous notions to trust in themselves and to pursue wealth and pleasure as the surety for life. Hear the plea of the gospel. Do not put your trust in this world, but trust in Christ who alone gives life everlasting. So as I draw this message to a close, I just want to share a perspective that I saw with you for, as I read it with you guys. I'd never seen it this way before. But this passage is written to a rich man at the end of his life. What we see here is a man who is standing before God, seeing the fleeting value of his riches and the sinfulness of the way he's gone about collecting them. They're staring him in the face as he's standing before a righteous God for judgment. And let's remember, one day we too will all stand before a righteous and holy God who cannot overlook sin. And we will be held accountable. And when that day comes, 
and you stand before a holy and righteous God who has the power to forgive your sins or to cast you forever into hell, what do you want him to see? Would you like him to see your wallet and how much you've acquired? Or do you want him to see the blood of Jesus that makes you pure? Prioritize your riches. We're told in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you are here this morning and you set your heart on the riches of this world, or you're trusting in those riches for your safety, hear this warning from God through James. Please take careful stock of yourself and ensure that your priorities are right. It is a slow process to change your trust from God to your riches, a process you may not even realize has taken place. And if you're convicted about your use of the riches God has given you, here's your chance to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Put your riches back into perspective. Recognize that God has lent them to you for his glory and for the edification of others. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that this message that you have given me this morning will be one that will touch hearts. Lord, for your glory. To, to grow your people, to give wisdom, to give insight. Lord, that we might serve you better. Lord, it is our desire to, to serve you. We fail constantly to live the lives you've called us to live. And we thank you for the forgiveness you give us, Lord. But please keep convicting us. Please keep showing us our error. Please keep drawing us back to yourself, Lord, that we might live lives that you would have us to live. Help us to prioritize properly, Lord, to keep our, our riches, the things that you loan to us in perspective. In Jesus' most precious name I pray. Amen.